0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Get your Bibles out. Matthew chapter 24. We're talking about the end times, the prophecies that Jesus gave, what the world will look like when he comes again. And this morning's message is aptly titled the final generation. And I'm going to just say right here at the outset, from the message that I share with you and give to you today, I believe the things that Jesus is going to outline and the things he's going to share and the few verses we're going to look at this morning that tell us about the final generation, I believe we are living in the final generation before the return, the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring his kingdom from heaven to the earth and that will be with him forevermore. So I'm just telling you up front, that's, that's where, I'm, where I'm at, where I'm coming from. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 32, we get right into it. Now, Jesus says, after all that we've shared the last few weeks, now he says, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, everything he's been talking about, know that it is near at the doors. So he says, I'm going to tell you about the fig tree. And when you see the fig tree, you know, guys, what it's like, the fig tree. The fig tree, and so here's what, a, number one in your outline, you can fill in the blank. The fig tree is Israel. That's what I want to share with you from Scripture, why I believe the fig tree is Israel. Everybody look up here, say this out loud with me, the fig tree is Israel. And that's why Jesus is talking about the fig tree. When the children of Israel went into the promised land, uh, and, and he said, man, I'm going to bless this land It's going to grow all kinds of crops. There'll be seven holy fruits that are symbolic of my anointing and my blessing. Because it's a pretty dry, generally arid place. He goes, but these seven fruits will be signs of my divine favor and blessing on your life. And one of those seven is the fig tree. And the reason that God, look, God loves the whole world. And Israel is the chosen people. And he started with Abraham. And so what's that all about? Because you say, well, they're chosen. That's like, oh, we're all left out. No, that's not the way it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So let's start with the obvious and the truth. God loves the whole world. So why are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and they became Israel? Oh, my firstborn son, Israel. They're chosen. Why? Because God had to start somewhere. He loves all, every nation, every language, every kindred and tribe, but we're all lost. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they blew it, and they, we got kicked out of the garden. And then the sin came, and then death came, and then the curse came, and we were lost. So we needed to all be redeemed. So you got to start somewhere. So God started with a seed, and that seed is Abraham and his family and his son and his grandson and then the 12 and then the nation. And God said, okay, look, Israel, I love you, and I'm going to bless you, and you're chosen of me, and you're special because you're first, and I'm going to bless you so much. I'm going to bring my favor upon you. I'm going to take you and take this dry, arid place that's going to burst with greenery and with rain from heaven, and you'll walk with me. And you'll hear and obey my commands and I'll keep you healthy and I'll keep all these diseases away from you and my anointing will be upon you and I will so bless you. I'm going to use you to provoke jealousy among all the other nations of the whole world. And they'll say, wow, we want to be the chosen of God. We want to be under the favor of God. We want God to be our father. We want to be one of his children. That was the idea. Does that make sense? It wasn't just end with them, but he began with them. So there are two obvious questions that arise from this parable. Who or what is the fig tree, and how long is a generation? Now know this about the fig tree, and people in the Middle East, and especially in Israel, you know, one of the obvious things, they know about fig trees. And by the way, Jesus right now is just days away from Passover. That he's in Jerusalem. We're in Matthew 24. We're getting to the end of the Gospel. So you know, millions of Jews from all over north, south, east, and west are all converging swelling the population of the city of Jerusalem because all Jews had to be there for Passover. And Jesus is saying to them, you guys know about the fig tree. In the springtime, the fig tree is unique among all the trees because it begins to have the first blossoms, the first buds. It has early fruit. Now, the big harvest and fruit will come in the summer. But what's special and what's unique about the fig tree is, it's the first one of the trees, generally, to begin bearing fruit. That's what the Lord saw Israel to be. I want you to be the first nation that begins blossoming and that begins uh, bearing fruit, and I want you to do it early to help bring and provoke that jealousy. So the parable is appropriate, for the fig tree was a commonly known symbol for the nation of Israel And I'm going to explain to you why We're to, Let's go through the Old Testament Let's look at the prophets Starting with Hosea Chapter 9, verse 10 By the way, there's a picture of a fig tree Is that the biggest fig tree you've ever seen in your life? I just, we just went online I said, I want the biggest Best looking fig tree in the planet And that <laughs> popped up May all of you have fig trees like that But anyway, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Let's read it out loud. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing a fig tree's first figs in its first season. So here, this is the prophet Hosea. And here God compares Israel. He goes, it was like being in the desert, dry, arid, and finding grapes. You're like, wow, wow. Who doesn't want to find grapes in the middle of the desert? And then he says, and your fathers were were like uh, the fig tree. They were like figs to me. So this is God himself that is speaking about Israel, that you're like the fig tree's first fruits. They're the early fruits. But then Joel, the prophet Joel, goes on to speak of God saying, my land. And then God says, my fig tree. This is right out of the mouth of God. So Joel, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, let's read it out loud. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. This is God prophesying now through a second prophet. He started with Hosea. Then he prophesied through Joel, and he's calling his people my fig tree that bears the early fruit as an example to the world to provoke jealousy among the nations that they would all want to come home, that I might be their father and bless them. Now, I put this in your notes. I don't have all the scriptures. It's a lot of verses, and we don't have time to read it, but it's there for you to read on your own later on. Here is a third prophet who is also, so this is Jeremiah, one of the main prophets in the Old Testament, chapter 24, verses two through eight. And God shows Jeremiah a supernatural vision and it's about the nation of Israel and it's a vision where he sees baskets of figs. Some of the figs are good figs, some of the figs are bad figs, but God says all the figs are my people Israel and they are the Jewish people. So it's another analogy so now here, Jesus, as he's been giving all these signs, there's gonna be wars and rumors of wars and these are, things are going to happen and they'll be like birth pangs. And then as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, Jesus said, but the end is not yet. Don't get excited. But when you see nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and it's very, very important and powerful that when I shared with you that expression, because Jesus was saying, when you see nation against nation, Kingdom against kingdom, wake up and start paying attention. And that is a Hebrew idiom for world war. So from 2,000 years ago in Jesus' own time, until the 20th century, there were no world wars. But then all of a sudden, we get to the 20th century, and there's World War I. In fact, right now, I haven't seen it, but there's a movie out, and the title of the movie is 1917. 1917. Why did they make a movie in 1917? Because that's when World War I was. And then just a few decades later, we had what's called World War II, just in the span of a few decades. And I mentioned, I shared with you, when Jesus said, when you see World Wars, hello, wake up, it's coming, my kingdom is coming. Pay attention. And by the way, everything is revolving around Israel. We shared how World War I was about Israel. And again, by the way, it was in the year 1917, during World War I, that General Allenby, who led the British Army, liberated Israel and Jerusalem from 400 years of the Ottoman Turkish Empire rule. So when Jesus said, when you see world wars... It's on, my plan's happening, and it's all about Israel. 1917, World War I shows, God was liberating Jerusalem. Then, in a few decades later, World War II comes, we know the history of that, the Holocaust, where Hitler tried to destroy. He literally said, I want to destroy the life of every living Jew on planet Earth. Tried to exterminate them, but he failed. And God was against him, and the Allies won. And then at the end of World War II, 1945, within three years, who would have ever dreamed? 1948, just three years later, three, a very significant number in the Bible, the nation of Israel was born. It's mighty and it's powerful what God has done. So Jesus is continuing this correlation of Israel, the fig tree, during the final stage of his ministry. Now by the way, he would go to Jerusalem during the day and do his teaching and do miracles there, but then he would spend the night on the Mount of Olives, which is close. You have, you know, the Temple Mount, Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives. And up on the top of the Mount of Olives, there was a little village there called Bethany, and there was a family there named, uh, with a brother and two sisters, Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And this time when Jesus has come to the, his last Passover, before the cross and the resurrection, he, was, he came because Lazarus had died. And Lazarus had been dead how many days? Four. Four days. And then Jesus comes. They roll away the stone. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes walking forth. Man, it's powerful. I love that. And, and now all the people, all the Jews come converging to Jerusalem. What do you think everybody's talking about? They're all talking, do you think Jesus of Nazareth, did you hear about Lazarus right there in Bethany, right across in the Mount of Olives? He was dead four days. He's been resurrected. Is Jesus the Messiah? And they're all looking and wondering and waiting about all of that. So now it's interesting, Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, because as Jesus came back from Bethany after the resurrection of Lazarus, he passed a fig tree. He noted there's no fruit on it, when there should have been at least some early fruit. And seeing it unfruitful, he cursed it. So let's read Matthew chapter 21, verse 19. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again, immediately the fig tree withered away. So, you know, Jesus curses it, then they go on. Well, the next morning they come walking by and it was like, woo, it all withered up. And they were like, wow. It was like weird, supernatural. And it was because Jesus had spoken to it and that became a picture of what would happen to Israel. Now in Luke chapter 21, verse 29, I did not put the scripture in your notes. If you want to write it down, you can. But Jesus in Luke 21 verse 29, did share a parable about the fig tree, and then he goes, and all the trees. So all of a sudden there are people who go, well, then, yeah, the fig tree can't be Israel because he said the fig tree and all the trees. Well, what I want to share with you is that trees, according to the Jewish understanding and the way they look at parables, trees are used as symbols of nations, And so even when Jesus said, so what Jesus is saying when he says the fig tree and all the trees, and he's talking about the end times, what he's saying is that these signs are not only going to affect Israel, they're going to affect every nation on the planet. But he still singled out the fig tree and all the trees. All the nations will be affected by the last day's events, but still there is one tree singled out which is the fig tree, which is the tree that symbolizes Israel because it should have had early fruit. And so that makes it clear that Jesus is likening Israel to the fig tree and just as the fig tree was to wither, so too would Israel because they had rejected him. Jesus prophesied, you shall be, you know, the city shall be destroyed, not one stone left on top of another. And the Romans came in in 70 A.D. and destroyed Jerusalem. And then, I don't know if you know this, but some years later, in 135 A.D., the Jews tried to revolt against Rome again. And the Romans came and crushed them again. And then they sent the Jews and scattered them to the, literally the four corners of the earth. There should have been fruit. There wasn't fruit. They withered. They were uprooted. And they were spread and cast around the world, but Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, so if you're writing down notes and you want something, I want to give you a little homework assignment, okay? I want you to read Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37. In these two chapters, the ancient Hebrew prophet Ezekiel saw vision and in the vision he saw the valley full of dry bones it was a bunch of dead people so they'd been dead so long there was no skin no hair they were just white bones dislocated from one another sticking up out of the sand and god comes up to the prophet and says can these bones live and ezekiel wisely said lord you know i guess they can if you want them to he said i want them to talk to the bones prophesy to the bones Command them in my name to come together. So Ezekiel prophesies in the name of the Lord. I command you, O bones, in the name of God, come together. Boom. And there's this great sound and, you know, this great rustling and bones clicking and clacking. And they, you know, foot bone to the shin bone to the knee bone to the thigh bone to the hip bone to the head bone all the way up. And then skin comes on them and muscles and hair. And they're standing there, and, and look, here's the cool thing. We don't have to guess how to interpret what it means, because God tells Ezekiel exactly what it is. This is the house of Israel. I'm going to resurrect them when they have been dead, separated, blown apart, in the sand. And I'm going to resurrect them. When, uses a very powerful Hebrew phrase, two phrases, in the latter years and in the latter days. Latter years, latter days before what? Before the great day of the Lord, when the kingdom of heaven comes to the earth. That's the fig tree. That's Israel. That's what happened in 1948. The bones came together. And literally, physically, when Israel was declared a nation, it became then a focal point. A little tiny nation, seven million Jews. And yet it's on the front page, you know, the whole world. In Europe they talk about it. In Africa, they talk about it. In Asia, they talk about it. Obviously, the Americas, they talk about it. It's right in the middle, right in the center. And God resurrected them. Now, it was after 2,000 years. Now, here's the amazing thing. There has never been a people who have lost their homeland, then been scattered to the four corners of the earth, for 2,000 years, whoever came back to where they came from. How many of you have a Canaanite neighbor? Let me, you know... What happened to the Canaanites? All the ites, the Girgashites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, termites, yes, whatever. <laughs> the ites are gone. They disappeared, that's what usually happens. Why is it? But God said the Jews will never lose their identity. And you could be, a, you could be a, in South America, You could be Venezuelan, but you could also be a Venezuelan Jew. You could live in France, be French, speak French, go to French schools, have a French business, but still be known as a French Jew. Or Asia, or Africa, or America, they're still identified. God said they will never, never take that away, because then... I will bring them back. And he did it after 2,000 years. Now, Peter in the New Testament says that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So from God's reckoning of time, Israel died and didn't exist for two days. And at the beginning of the third day, they resurrected as a nation. And what I believe is that Israel, the nation and the rebirth of Israel, is God's sermon to the seven billion people on the planet who maybe don't go to church and hear Bible prophecy studies by Pastor Ray Bentley and stuff like that. (laughs) They don't know nothing about it. But that's God's sermon to them. I resurrect the dead and with a people that it's never happened to any other people in human history or to the human race. And what's the application of God's sermon about resurrecting Israel on the third day? It is him saying, and guess what? My son, whom I sent to that planet 2,000 years ago, also raised from the dead on the third day. And he is king of kings, lord of lords, and he's coming back, and get ready. For every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a sermon about Jesus. So Israel is a mirror of Jesus, and Jesus was a mirror of Israel. So the fig tree is sprouting and bearing fruit in a physical sense For now, just over 70 years, from 1948 to the year 2020, a little over 70 years. Not only is Israel bearing fruit in a natural sense, but add to this the spiritual renewal that is taking place. As right now, this morning, today, there are thousands of Jews who were born in Israel, who speak Hebrew, who went to Hebrew schools, who served in the Israeli military and now are doctors and lawyers and nurses and all the rest of it, who believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But they continue to say, but I didn't become a Baptist, I didn't become a Presbyterian, I didn't become a Wesleyan, I am a Jew and I will remain a Jew who believes that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. So, they retained their Jewish identity through the modern messianic movement. So, I want to say to you the lessons of the fig tree are powerful and undeniable in front of the whole world. And then, verse 33, Jesus says, When you see all these things, when you see the fig tree blossoming in front of you, and that, know that my coming is near. Where? I'm at the doors. Okay, so here it is, January 2020. Where are we? People are saying, where are we? And, you know, the last few weeks, I've kind of been laying it out there. Have you noticed? Where I, you know, I have been getting calls from different parts, different places, people watching, you know, that I haven't heard from in years, all of a sudden, hey, man, what are you talking about? Is this really like... We're talking about it, and it's stirring up all kinds of questions and all the rest of it. Where are we? I'll tell you where we are. We're at the doors. Or Jesus is at the door. That's where we're at, right? He's at the door. And he's ready to come. Are you ready? So the word for the year is prepare. prepare. So be prepared. Get ready. now. Verses 34 and 35, this generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. So Jesus says in verse 34, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What does the word generation mean? Some thought it was the generation of Jesus and the disciples. Oh, everything. In fact, there are people that say it It all happened then 2,000 years ago. The book of Revelation is done. It was already done. But there was no abomination of desolation. There was no great tribulation, though there was tribulation, and there was no visible return of Jesus Christ. There is a second view that says this generation will not pass away till all these things take place, is the generation that sees the prophetic signs and meaning the restoration of the nation of Israel, will be the last generation of Israel. And I believe this is what we're seeing right now, this is what's happening today, and we are living in that generation. Now, there is a third application because they, the word generation can also mean race. So some interpret it as saying the Jewish people will never cease to exist all the way until the second coming. So, Pastor Ray, what do you think about that? Well, let me tell you what I think about that. I've come to know and understand in, in understanding the Bible and, and from, I've learned a lot from our Jewish brothers and sisters and a Hebrew mindset A lot of times in Western thinking, we want to know, so it means this. Well, no, some people say it means that. And then we pick a camp and we fight and we argue over it, right? And doctrinal divisions and all the rest of it. The Hebrews look at it and they go, well, yes, it has one meaning and one truth. But we believe that it has 70 layers of meaning. So this point over here, even though you don't know how to reconcile it with that point over there, if you put them like this and you make them 70 layers, they could still somehow both be true. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying to you is, yeah, I think there may be a layer of truth that the Jewish people will remain and will be in existence all the way until the Lord comes again. But I believe another layer says that the fig tree is the nation of Israel that has been restored and rebounded. So now... You've heard of the Roman road of salvation. How many of you have heard of the Roman road of salvation? Kind of like, you know, sinners, we're all of sin, falling short of the glory of God, and then about the grace of God and salvation. Well, did you know that there's a Roman road of supernatural blessing related to the Jewish people? And how many of you would, would be interested in, if you could find a path to kind of getting inside blessing, supernatural blessing? You'd be open to that, all right? So I want to share with you the Romans road. So this is after the resurrection, the church has already started, Paul's preaching the gospel all over the Roman Empire, but he gave a secret insight to the Jewish people, especially in the book called Romans, to the Roman world. Romans 1.16, let's read this out loud. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. If you have a pen or pencil, you don't have that scripture written down in your notes, do you? Okay, so in your mind, I want you to underline, for the Jew first, okay? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first, then also to the Gentile. So Paul's going around the Roman world on these three different missionary trips, preaching about Jesus. And every place Paul would go, every new city, Corinth, Ephesus, whatever, where's the first people? Who are the first people that he would share the the truth with? The Jewish people. Why? Because they had the prophecies 318 prophecies about the Messiah. He goes, Hey, guys, you know the prophecies about the Messiah? Yeah, well, he came. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Have you heard? And probably they had heard. And Paul would fill them in, and some would become believers, and a church would get started. But then Gentiles started, Hey, hey, we run in on this. We've heard about Jesus, too. And little by every place, Paul would start. He would go to the Jews first. But that church, in each place, the the Gentiles outnumbered the Jews. So Paul was laying down a foundation. And, And I think it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I will bless those who bless you, Abraham. I will curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Some interpret to the Jew first as, well, the gospel started in Jerusalem and then they left and they went to witness to the rest of the world and they left Jerusalem back 2,000 years ago. I want to share with you, I believe this is a pattern, and this is the pattern that I have followed as a pastor of Maranatha Chapel from the very, very beginning. Lord, I want to bless and honor your people, not because they're better than us, but because it's your your family, your Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And I want to bless them first. So we've been blessing them. And God's blessing has been on us. Does that make sense? Okay, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Let's read this. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Let's stop there for just a moment. Paul is saying, I'm willing to go to hell for all of eternity if all my brothers and sisters could be saved. How many of you here this morning are ready to get in line on that one? Maybe some of you would. But you know, there's only one person in all the New Testament that said they would do that. Paul said, "I, I would like to, I wish I could, but I can't. There was one in the New Testament and there was one in the Old Testament. What is the one person in the Old Testament that said, blot my name out, Lord, so that Jews and Israel can live? What was his name? Moses. And God said to Moses, sorry, Moses, doesn't work that way, not for you, you can't do it. No, Paul, you can't do it either. But there actually was one that God said, okay, I'll allow you. That was his son. That was Jesus who went to the cross and all of hell, and all of death, and all of sin, and all of Satan, and all of it, he bore the curse upon himself. But because he is holy and just, on the third day, he broke its back. He broke its chains. It burst asunder, and he defeated sin, and he defeated death, and he defeated the devil, and he defeated darkness, and he rose forever and ever. And that's why every knee will bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Amen. But then we go on, And then Paul says this, let's read it, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. This is all, now this is after the resurrection. This is what God gave to the Jews. He gave them the adoption. He gave them the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Now, let me just say this. In church history, real simple overview, that there were many believers from, you know, from the time that, you know, this prophecy about Israel coming back together and and they said, well, you know, it hasn't happened. I mean, maybe it's not gonna happen. Maybe we shouldn't take the Bible literally the bones and Israel would become a nation again. Maybe it's spiritual. And then they began to say that, so, so really what God's promises are, he's blessing us, it's about the church. So in the entire Old Testament, they would literally, whenever you saw the word Israel, and this is, this is called replacement theology. So everywhere in the Old Testament, they read a promise or a blessing for Israel, they would kind of in their mind, take Israel out and put the church. All the blessings and all the promises of God are no longer about physical Israel, they're about us, the church. But then if there was a curse about Israel, they go, no, no, that's for the Jews. So all the <laughs> curses go to them, they killed God, they did this, they rejected the Messiah, so God's done with them. So they got the curses, the church got the blessings. 500 years, no Israel. 1,000 years in the church, there's still no Israel. 1,500 years, 1,600 years, 1,700 years. And then all of a sudden, 1948, 2,000 years of church historians. There were a few who got it and held on. No, I think God means what he said. But man, in 1948, when Israel became a nation, it flipped the whole church up on its head. Like maybe God meant what he said in the beginning because he just did it. And we got to restructure our whole way of thinking. So sadly, here's what happened in the Old Testament from the time of Abraham to Jesus is 2,000 years. And God warned the Jewish people, yeah, I chose you through Abraham, I love you, I bless you, spoiled you, I, I used you to show my favor, to provoke jealousy. Now don't give it lifted up with pride. But what happened? They got lifted up with pride. And they ended up by Jesus' day, the most religious, standing with their little robes around them and going, thank God I wasn't born a Gentile. And they were filled with pride. And then God, they get chopped. So now the church gets born, right? And after 2,000 years... Some within the church said, thank God I'm not a Jew. They're under the curse of God, and we're better than that or better than them. And the Lord is warning, saying, wait a second. No, let us all be humble. Let us honor God's roots and what God is doing. But to them was given the glory. And I want to just mention... Well, we'll we'll, we'll hold on to that for just a minute. I think that the glory of God, when we come back to our Jewish roots and when we honor those Jewish roots, God will bring His glory. The glory of God's been coming back upon the church, revival after revival. Every time God touches Israel, blesses Israel, He pours out His Spirit on the church. Amen? Okay, look with me at Romans 15, verses 25 through 27. Let's read this. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And going on, it pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them immaterial things. Paul basically just goes around all these churches throughout Rome which are now predominantly Gentile. And he goes, I'm asking for money. And he goes, I'm not just asking you for money, because the poor Jews back in Jerusalem are persecuted and they're suffering, and some of them are martyrs. And, and and he says, You Gentiles, look, you got all these spiritual blessings. You got eternal life, you're adopted into the family of God. You're now chosen in Christ Jesus. You're his sons and daughters, you're a royal priesthood. You got all these spiritual blessings. And they're suffering, and they, they need help. He goes, you owe them a debt. That's basically what he said. And the reason that the church owes the Jewish people a debt is because all of the apostles, except for Judas, who took himself out, and John, who died of natural causes on the Isle of Patmos, he had the vision of the Revelation. But 10, the other 10 disciples were all Jews. All of them became martyrs. All 10 of those Jewish men... They shed their blood so that the Gentiles could hear the story of the gospel and become inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. We owe, and Paul says, you owe them a debt. Jews shed their blood so you could live forever as God's royal chosen son or daughter. Help them out. So that's why we have the Nehemiah Fund. If you have not heard of it, we have a Nehemiah Fund. This is not out of tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings take care of the house and the ministry of the house. But we have a separate fund. We call it the Nehemiah Fund. Remember in the days of Nehemiah, God's rebuilding Israel. That's what God's doing again in our day. So we send money to help bring Jews back to the land. We give money to the Messianic Jewish believers who are there trying to be a light in a very difficult, rough neighborhood of the world. And we give money to our Palestinian Arab brothers and sisters there in Nazareth and Bethlehem and Jericho. And we try to strengthen the body of Christ because we feel like we owe them a debt. So I wanna ask, I'm gonna challenge every single person in here. I want every one of you to prayerfully consider sometime in 2020, because when we go to Israel in 2021, we'll bring that offering. I want you to put something in it, not out of your tithes, but an offering. I want you to have a piece of that blessing that will go directly to the heart of where it's all coming down and where Jesus is coming back and I want you to have the, the reward. God will supernaturally bless you above and beyond anything you could ask or think. We've been doing it now for since about 2005, and we have given some $1.7 million to the, to the work of God right there in the Middle East and blessing your neighbors, hallelujah. So I want you to prayerfully consider that. Okay, last scripture, whoo, I gotta hurry. Verse 36, uh, 24, verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus uses the Jewish expression of a Jewish wedding. The fact is, no one knows the exact day or the hour Jesus is coming, and if anyone tells you otherwise, they're wrong. Not the angels in heaven, they don't know. Not the Son, Jesus doesn't know. Only the Father. There's a very interesting analogy hidden within these words because the expression perfectly fits a word picture from a traditional Jewish wedding. When the young man would go to the girl and he would make his vows and promise, we're gonna get married, we call it engagement. And in the Jewish world, When you get engaged, you're legally married, even though the wedding may be a year, a year and a half away. You make a vow, you're locked in, son, you're married, legally. But then the the bridegroom uh, says to the bride, they all give the same speech, now I have to leave you. (laughs) We just got engaged, we're going to get married, now i got to leave. Where are you going? I'm going to my dad's house, you know, land. What are you going to do there? I'm going to build our bridal house where we're going to have our wedding, where we're going to have our family and our children. So when's the wedding? When I get done with the house. Well, then get going. <laughs> build my house. But the tradition was that they didn't leave it up to the young man to decide when a house was good enough because he might put up a tent and get married tonight. <laughs> so they said, no, 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 you're going to build a real house. It's going to take you a year to 18 months. So you, and it was left up to the father of the bridegroom to say when the house was good enough for his daughter-in-law and future children to come into the house. So the tradition of the Jewish father was to wait and always find something, ah, you can make this better, you can make that better. And the son's like, dad, it's basically done, come on. And he would wait till his son was fast asleep, dead in the middle of the night, and then in a surprise at midnight he goes and he wakes up his son, okay son, you can go get your bride. The son would then go out into the street, start yelling, shouting, and hollering, go get all the other 12 best men that are in the wedding. And now they, all of them, start running through the village, hooping, hollering, shouting, and yelling, making a lot of noise, running now to the bride's house. She is literally going to be snatched, raptured out of her house. Now the brides know that it's those Jewish fathers tradition to wait until the middle of the night. No girl wants to be caught when she's not ready and get her dress and makeup. So she has all her girlfriends when they know, the it's any day now, any day now. It's like a game. It builds a suspense of the romance. So she has her girlfriends take turns every three hours, two of them with a little lamp, a little light, talking, telling stories. What are they doing? They're looking out into the night, listening for the hoops and hollers and shouts of the young men. So they go to the bride and go, he's coming. Get your dress, put on your makeup. The wedding's tonight. And the whole village is waking up. You know how we, you know the cars and the tin cans and honking horns? Goes all the way back to a Jewish thing. Yelling, shouting. And then he comes and steals her and the wedding begins. Only the father knows. Jesus went to build us a house. He's been gone for 2,000 years. Can you imagine what he has prepared for you and for me? And one day, the father is going to go, son, now we're at the door. Now, you can go get your bride. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. What is he shouting about? His bride. Woohoo! Honey, here I come! And the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall arise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord. And wherefore, we shall forever be with the Lord. That's what we're getting ready and prepared for. Get ready for it now. Don't mess around. Don't compromise. Don't live in the world. Don't live after the flesh. Your wedding is coming soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.